You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Matt Meyer and Emma Atkinson. Lawyer Alex Murdoch, who came from a powerful South Carolina family of litigators, was recently found guilty of murdering his wife and son. The ruling is just the latest in a winding series of tragic events involving the Murdoch family. The New Yorker described the saga as one rife with, quote, embezzlement, drug trafficking, money laundering, a faked murder attempt, a failed assisted suicide, and the deaths of three other individuals. Though Murdoch's crimes were nothing short of heinous, the prosecution decided against pursuing the death penalty in his case. This fact wasn't lost on Judge Clifton Newman, who delivered the judgment against Murdoch just last week. He said, quote, As I sit here in this courtroom and look around the many portraits of judges and other court officials and reflect on the fact that over the past century, your family, including you, have been prosecuting people here in this courtroom, many have received the death penalty, probably for lesser conduct. South Carolina, where Murdoch's trial proceedings were held, has executed 43 people in its history as a state, 19 of them since the year 2000. Meanwhile, far fewer people have been executed by the federal government, just 50 since the year 1927. 23 U.S. states have abolished the death penalty, and three others have paused executions thanks to a governor-imposed moratorium. President Donald Trump lifted the federal stay on executions in 2020, resulting in the execution of 13 death row inmates in Terre Haute, Indiana. Today, we're talking to two people with in-depth or first-hand knowledge of the death penalty and how it works. University of Denver professor Sam Kamen will share his research on whether the death penalty is applied consistently. But first, we hear from public radio journalist George Hale, who works for Bloomington, Indiana-based WFIU News and who witnessed five federal executions. I think the like, pressure of like the job was definitely more like in the front of my mind, um, especially because I was like, coming into this, like, in the middle of this, like, huge execution spree that started, like, um, five executions prior, and so a, a group, you know, not a large group, but a sizable group of journalists from all over the country had sort of, like, figured out how all this is working, you know, for all those executions, and then I was kind of just coming in the middle of it and trying to pretend I knew what I was doing. There's only so much that each state allows witnesses to see and only so many witnesses it allows to see it. But before any of the actual execution proceedings can begin, there's a period of time when additional litigation about the execution can be brought forth, which can delay the execution by hours or even days. Depending on which execution you're witnessing, you could have like, you could go to the, you know, the place they tell you to go, like be here by 4 p.m. or whatever. And the execution can start like an hour from then or it could start like the next day, like you know, 18 hours later or whatever, because there were three different, you know, stays of execution in like three different jurisdictions in America about three completely different things all to be resolved. And so anyway, that's like one thing that's a little bit hard to say. There's no typical like execution, I guess. But once all of the additional last minute legal proceedings have been settled, the process begins. George recalls gathering with other journalists at an off-site meeting location and being subjected to a TSA-like screening before being shepherded into vans and taken to the prison grounds. The reporters were taken to one of several rooms connected to the execution chamber by a large window. The other rooms are for friends and loved ones of the person who's going to be executed, as well as the friends and loved ones of the victim or victims of the crime committed. Assuming everything goes according to plan, um, eventually the curtain, there will be the, these curtains that rise um, and there's like windows that look inside. Um, and the person will be in the federal system already strapped down to this gurney, um, like weird table that has like like arms that like go down kind of sort of. It's like a 
like a stick figure with your arms down and they're strapped to it. Um, and um, as soon as that happens, the someone who's like a prison official um, will basically tell this person like you're being executed for such and such reasons. And if you have any last words, like now's your opportunity to, to say them. And um, usually people have something to say. Um, either be anything from like profound apologies for what the crime they committed to in two cases that we witnessed like adamant denials that they did anything that they had done this at all. George recalls the recording of the last words as one of the most important parts of the process for journalists. Of course, there's no actual recording allowed, no phones or cameras, so it's all up to the journalists and their notepads to make sure that they get those last words exactly right. It can be a little stressful. Basically, the first priority is to write down exactly what the person who's about to be executed says, you know, um, <clears throat> which is easier said than done, depending on your, like, you know, um, how used to like, taking notes you are, right? Or like, how good your handwriting is even, or how fast you can write and stuff like that. And so, and also like how fast they talk or how clearly they talk and how much they have to say. Um, and so it could vary really wildly, um, or sorry, widely, um, in terms of like, yeah, in, in individual executions versus like, yeah, another. Then the U.S. Marshal on site calls Washington, D.C. to get personal permission from the sitting U.S. Attorney General that the execution can go ahead. And then the Marshal would hang up the phone and tell the executioner there's no impediments, um, they would say, and then they would turn the microphone off and we would all just kind of stand there awkwardly. And you don't see anything happen because like the I hadn't actually, I don't know, I hadn't actually imagined like what lethal injection meant. Like I never, it was just funny and weird. Like I, it never occurred to me like, what does that mean? Does someone walk up with a syringe and just stick it in your arm? Or it had literally never occurred to me. And so um, when I was watching that first execution, like I didn't know what I was even looking for because the person was already strapped down to the gurney and these IVs connected to their either arms or like hands or legs um, go like backwards through the wall in the background. And so you don't actually see anything at all. Um, you just see like the person's reaction. It's very, very kind of like creepy. Um, like whatever liquid they're putting in the IV presumably is the same color as the, you know, um, saline or whatever. Um, and so you literally see no change except for the person's reaction, which is when it's this method, it's usually something that looks like um, labored breathing, and then just, yeah, like um, kind of just, uh, yeah, the breathing getting like lighter and then it just sort of drifting off. It's what it looks like. Um, but of course, we know that that's not exactly the case every time. So the executioner is in a, a completely separate room. So you know how like there's a like like a, a wall that has like, you know, one foot by one foot tiles, like sort of like, like literally like this kind of, you know, um, like one of the like squares is just missing. And so like the, the IV lines are just going through that square like, um, and to a room that you don't, the room that has like a, um, I guess it has like a two-way mirror so, or whatever, one-way mirror, so you don't actually see them, but they, I presume, can see out, out of what's going on. Um, and I have no idea how many people are back there. I have no idea, like, what the exact process is. Like, I know that the execution protocol basically says that it's two injections of um, a certain amount of this drug, which is designed to treat seizures, it's not designed for this. Um, presumably like injected into the line or however a nurse would do that, I don't know. But, 
and also I shouldn't say a nurse because we have actually no idea like how qualified these people are to do any of this. We don't know who they are and what their qualifications are. Um, obviously any medical professional who's participating in this would be um, in violation of like, you know, basic like, medical ethics. And so um, if they even are doctors, like that would be secret. So what I find interesting is that that wall separating the executioner and everyone else is almost like a, a modern executioner's hood, right? Because that was the whole purpose so that you wouldn't see who totally. was banning the guillotine or or whatever. Yeah, and I, I actually think this is like one of the most fascinating aspects of it because it's like, if you have to identify like which person is exactly responsible in the room, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. Is it the guy who orders it? Because like surely that guy plays a role. But he didn't touch anyone. He didn't do anything. He just stands there, you know? It's like, what about the marshal that like connects the, you know, the line to the attorney general, like who said to like proceed, like, is he responsible? But then if you ask the attorney general, he would say, I wasn't even the attorney general and the jury and wherever sentenced this guy to death 15 years ago, you know, like that's, that's them. They're the ones who did that. You know, I'm just like following the law or whatever. And like, it's, yeah. And then if you want to get really weird, like think about it is that like, you know, the execution protocol lists like the witnesses there. And so in some states, I'm pretty sure that they can't carry out the execution without the media witnesses. And so it makes you sort of like raises the question of like, you know, are the journalists really neutral observers either? Because if they weren't there, maybe this wouldn't even be happening. Um, and I always found that to be like a really interesting kind of thought experiment. And it's sort of how I felt first time I witnessed an execution, which was that um, I was part of this in a way that I felt really uncomfortable with. Um, whether that's like legally true or not, I'm not entirely sure, um, but it is an interesting question i guess to ask of yourself but anyway yeah but yeah the hooded person it's a good it's a good like analogy i never thought about that but that's exactly what it is you know, the actual person doing it you ever see them assuming it's one person even i don't even know you know maybe it's multiple people george witnessed five executions in the late months of 2020 and early 2021 those of william lacroix christopher vialva brandon bernard alfred bourgeois and corey johnson how how did you feel? Did it get easier as as it went on? You know, you said you felt somewhat responsible. Was there a feeling of guilt or or just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Like, you know, it's funny. I, I totally expected to feel really depressed or like traumatized or, you know, some kind of like PTSD like response. Um, if anything, I mean, that's what I assumed because I'd never seen someone killed, obviously. Um, and um but that's not what I felt. When I left, I felt like a real sense of just like, you know, shame or like guilt or like something dirty, you know, like I, I was just like a part of something that um, I really should not have been, you know, like it was a, I'm not saying like logically or objectively, but I just mean like emotionally, that was the feeling that was like, what have I just done? Like, what have I, you know, like gotten myself into sort of. Um, but then, you know, all the journalists, like, they just have to get to work after that. And so you kind of just push it out of your head and start typing and whatever. Um, and recording, you know, we we're obviously recording for radio station and PR. And so um, kind of, and I guess you can put it out of your head in that way because you have too much to do. Um, yeah. So the more I learned, though, about the chemicals, though, over time, I, the more I troubled, I guess, I became about, like, the whole the whole, yeah, like participating in it at all. And like I said before, but you know, I can just like repeat it just in case, like, you know, I think there's like real questions about what, um, what purpose 
we're serving to the public um, by witnessing uh, an execution that's done in this way because there's so little to actually um, witness. And so it makes you wonder if what you're reporting to the public, like for example, oh, he appeared to drift off, if that's not actually like giving people misinformation, you know, like almost like maybe it would be better to say nothing because you don't want to like, you know, contribute to misunderstanding. And I think that with lethal injection is a real risk that you're like giving people information that's not accurate, you know, um, because we just don't know. Yeah. And so anyway, that's, so yeah, I guess my feelings changed over time the more I learned about like lethal injection and how like, how like limited the like, like the, how limited our options were to even like understand what was happening. George says his feelings about the death penalty remain the same following his experience witnessing the executions. I was definitely skeptical of the death penalty for a variety of reasons, but, you know, just as a public policy, the way that America handles executions in particular, I mean, I don't think that there's really any question that it's racist. The system that we have is racist. The question of whether or not the death penalty is a racist policy is one that is raised most every time an execution enters the news cycle. And it's one that people are discussing in the wake of the Murdoch trial. USA Today opinion contributor Austin Surratt wrote that, quote, it's hard to ignore the fact that the decision provided yet another example of racial and class privilege in the death penalty system. University of Denver law professor Sam Kamen says race is a factor in death penalty cases, but there's more nuance there. It's more complicated than people might think. People might think, oh, well, black uh, defendants get the death penalty and white defendants don't. Uh, it actually is, is more complicated, more nuanced than that. And one of the uh, things that seems clear is that um, the pairing of a victim and a defendant makes a big difference. So um, blacks who kill whites are far more likely than those in other groups to uh, receive the death penalty. Kamen is part of a new research study publishing soon that examines data from the Georgia State Death Row and has found that killers of white women are more likely to receive the death penalty than any other group. There is definitely a racial aspect to it. It is because most crime is intra-racial, that is most people kill someone of the same race. Um, the, the fact that you are white doesn't necessarily mean that you are less likely to get the death penalty. It really requires you to look at the, at the parent of a victim and a defendant. Okay, I see. So, so let me uh, let me ask you this: If I am black and I kill a white woman, am I more likely to receive the death penalty than a white man who kills a white woman? Uh, you are, in fact, yes. So, um, the there are far fewer of those killings, um, but the uh, you know at least in in the study that we uh, that we conducted or the uh, the data that we looked at, uh, that certainly seemed to be true. Kamen's work builds on a 1980s study by University of Iowa professor David Baldus that found the odds that a defendant would be sentenced to death for murder in Georgia were 4.3 times greater if at least one victim was white than if all victims were black, as stated in a quote from the Death Penalty Information Center. So yes, there is a racial aspect to how the death penalty is handed out. It's just not one that most people might assume. And Kamen also highlights one thing that USA Today's Surratt touched on in his opinion piece, that impoverished people are also more likely to be sentenced to death. In, in your introduction, you were talking about the, the Murdoch murders. Um, you know, one thing that people have highlighted is um, that, you know, the, the racial aspect is, is certainly well documented. Um, the, uh, the participation of competent counsel really makes a big difference that... Um, 
for people who are sentenced to death, uh, you know, the, the sort of history books are full of lawyers who were drunk or asleep or incompetent or underpaid. Um, and so, you know, you rarely get someone of means sentenced to death. That is, it is usually um, in the cases of the poor, not cases that are, are likely to, to have Netflix uh, series about them. Um, in sort of the cases that people aren't following that closely, where the the lawyering is not what you would get in a in a um, higher profile case, you see uh, those cases overrepresented among who's sentenced to death as well. Kamen teaches a class to DU students about the death penalty. He says every year he sees a broad variety of opinions about the policy and has heard many arguments as to why it's a good way to hand out justice. But he says many of those arguments are easily refuted. So there's a moral uh, philosophical question there. Um, there's also a question about um, fairness and justice. That is, um, you know, does it serve some purpose? And when I discuss this with my students, what I say is, you know, I, I'm going to propose that the death penalty serves no valid purpose. And you guys will have to talk me out of that. I think that if the uh, to ju justify the death penalty, certainly the reasons for it have to outweigh the reasons against it. So what are those reasons that we would impose the death penalty? And you know, deterrence is one idea that comes up that we have to, um, we have to uh, convince others not to commit this crime out of fear of punishment. Um, retribution is one that comes up a lot that um, you know, it, justice is only done uh, when a life is taken for life. Um, incapacitation is an idea that, that occurs that um, we need to make sure this person doesn't do it again. Uh, and, and a surprising number of students mentioned costs. That is, you know, when someone has committed one of these heinous crimes, keeping that person alive for the rest of their lives um, doesn't seem uh, to make sense as a, as a societal matter. Um, so, you know, I run through a lot of those questions with my students. And, you know, I mean, there are some of those are moral philosophical questions that people have to answer for themselves. To the extent we can answer those questions empirically, I think the case for the death penalty is not very strong. Um, certainly as a deterrence matter, it is very hard to uh, find proof that the, death, that the use of the death penalty reduces the murder rate. Um, there are a number of studies on them. The, the, um, uh, there have been some, a number of meta studies that have looked at those and have found that the data in favor of deterrence is weak at best and, and likely non-existent. There are even studies that show that there is what's called a brutalization effect, that the death penalty makes us, people in a society more likely to kill rather than less. Um, you know, From a incapacitation argument, certainly once someone has been put to death, they are no longer a threat to society, uh, but that sort of ignores the, the fact that someone is on death row um, and has essentially nothing to lose that can't be punished any more severely, um, that uh, you know, it certainly uh, reduces deterrence for any uh, misdeeds they would, they would carry out at that point. Um, and and the, again, one of my colleagues, Professor Marceau, has, has worked with others to show uh, that the it is more expensive to seek and impose a death penalty than to impose a life term. The trials are more expensive, the appeals are more expensive, uh, maintaining a death row is more expensive that if we were to simply convict someone of uh, murder and sentence that person to a life term, that would be far cheaper than, than sentencing that person to death. It seems the whole process seems to be shrouded in a lot of mystery. Is, is there an argument for, for making it clearer what goes on behind closed doors? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you know if you were interested in the deterrent effect of the death penalty, you would want to publicize those executions rather than hiding them, right? Um, and we don't do that. And the reason we don't do that is I think people are concerned that if the public actually saw what happens in the death chamber, that they would be repulsed by it. And you know, the number of botched executions that have taken place in the United States, whether they're by the electric chair and people catching on fire, whether they are um, lethal injections that don't work, whether they are, you know, the the there is no foolproof me foolproof method for putting uh, a person to death. Um, that um, those mistakes, those errors, the the um, mechanisms of putting someone to death uh, might repulse people. So yeah, almost nobody in the United States has seen an execution. We hide them. Um, the state is quite secret about the drugs that are used and how it procures those drugs. And there's been lots of litigation about that. Um, so yeah, there is lots of this that is mysterious and shrouded and has done so intentionally. In your opinion, in your professional opinion, what are the chances that we see the death penalty abolished in the United States in the foreseeable future? Yeah, that's a great question. It's sort of, you know, as you say, one of the ultimate questions. I always tell my, I, I used to teach a death penalty class. I haven't taught it since the death penalty was abolished in Colorado uh, several years ago uh, during COVID. Um, you know, I, but when I teach a death penalty class at DU, I tell my students, you know, when you guys are ending your legal careers in 30 or 40 or 50 years, it will shock new lawyers that you took a class on the death penalty. It would be like taking the law of slavery, uh, that it'll just seem outdated and, um, and uh, cruel. Um, and, you know, I think we are every day getting closer to that. There are fewer death sentences. There are fewer executions in the United States. Uh, public policy is moving away from the death penalty. Uh, I, I see it withering on the vine. I think whether it uh, sort of dies and falls off in uh, a year or two years or five or 10. Uh, I do not doubt that, you know, sort of the the um, the arc of history is is moving away from the death penalty. Uh, you can't be a member of the European Union if you have the death penalty. Um, so we, we uh, see around the world fewer and fewer nations using the death penalty. They look less and less like the United States or like nations the United States would want to be lumped in with. I think that, um, the more uh, people learn about the death penalty and see the realities of it, uh, the less popular it becomes. My last question here, do you believe that the death penalty is just? I personally do not. I, uh, I write on the death penalty. I do uh, empirical research on it. I'm personally opposed to it. I tell my students in my class, look, that's not the point of this class is for me to convince you that the death penalty is unjust. I personally think the death penalty is unjust for a lot of the reasons that uh, that we've been talking about. Um, but I also recognize that reasonable minds can disagree on that. What I try and do with my class and my work is to um, describe the realities of the death penalty in the United States to let people see and know what and how the death penalty works. Um, and, and I think that the more people know about it, the less popular it will become. Thanks again to our guests, reporter George Hale and University of Denver professor of law, Sam Kamen. For more information on their work and the sources used in this episode, check out our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, liking, and reviewing the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. Deborah Hosha is our production assistant. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Emma Atkinson, and this is Radio Ed.